Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Natalie Gontier, a PhD. She's a director of the Applied Evolutionary Epistemology Lab. Uh, she's part of the Faculty of Science on the University of Lisbon in Portugal. So uh, she's going to be part of uh, the virus book that I'm putting together. So I think she'll make a great addition. So Natalie, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Richard. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be back on your show. And uh, I, I look forward to, to participating in this project. Well, first, um, again, for people that don't know uh, a bit about your background and your current research, what are you, uh, what are you doing? So I'm a philosopher of science. I am not the, uh, a virologist. I'm a philosopher of science and I study evolutionary theory. So I, I focus on the field of biology. And within that field, I focus on the uh, one aspect I focus on is reticulate evolution. So that is evolution as it occurs by means of hybridization, symbiosis, symbiogenesis, lateral gene transfer, uh, and infectious uh, infective heredity. And so in that regard, I'm interested in viruses because viruses are, are one of the, the most common parasites that every life form has to uh, uh, cope with. And so I'm very interested uh, in seeing how that interaction occurs in uh, um, trying to help to think alongside the scientists on how these interactions can be visualized. And uh, most of the time that, that is visualized in networks, for example. And so. One of the things I'm interested in is, is uh, um, helping to think along uh, the lines of, of, of uh, science in how we can uh, reconceptualize this form of uh, interaction. Mm, okay. Well, I always, um, for these interviews, I want speculation because a lot of the questions just demand it. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And again, if you don't know an answer, it's okay. You know, if it's too far <laughs> afield, but I, you know, um, you're coming from a, a very different perspective than anyone else and that's going to make the book a lot better so i'm, I'm happy to talk to you well <laughs> let's see about that <laughs> yeah, yeah so uh you know first question uh, is there any form of of life or any organism you know that does not have a virus no no so the uh, life uh, at present is distinguished into three domains archaea bacteria and eukaryotes, which, which are multicellular organisms. And uh, viruses infect all three of them. So um, viruses uh, do not um, exclude any kind of life form that exists mm. in the world today. Any examples of viruses that, that you know, prey upon a given life form that just really amazes you, that there's even viruses for that thing? Uh, at this moment in time, I think it's it's very hard not to be amazed by by COVID nineteen. Um, I am really amazed by that virus. It is a very recent virus people are discovering, and it is really on uh, its way up on the the, the food chain, if it, so to speak, within the virus uh, uh, domain. Uh, it is very interesting to see how how one virus can so quickly. And by making use of, of, of our species, so quickly can conquer the world 
and infect so many people, kill so many people. We're almost at one million of people who have died from COVID-19 at the moment. So that is really incredible to see in one year time how one virus can can be so destructive and so uh, uh, quick at at and and able at at multiplying itself amongst one species. Yeah, no, true, very true. Do you think that um, viruses are alive, or do you think that they're contingently alive once they enter a cell? Also, there are different theories about it, right? A lot of people say that viruses are not alive, um, and the main reason that they is that they do not have some kind of self. So uh, any kind of organism has a, a unique lifespan. It has a beginning and a lifespan and an ending in time. And uh, as far as we know, nobody comes back the same. It is, it is mathematically speaking, if you see uh, how individuals are made, uh, especially uh, eukaryotic organisms are made, it is impossible for the same organism to arise twice. Bacteria, for example, they, they, they can split. And so uh, um, there, there is a mere division of the same individual, but uh, a eukaryotic being, an animal, a plant, that is a, 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 in, in many ways a unique organism. Also insofar as, as plants are, are um, duplicates sometimes of, of their, their mother plant, they still have um, uh, specific areas in the, in the genome where they are unique. And so uh, one of the things that viruses do not have is that kind of uniqueness. One of the things that viruses do is make more copies of, of existing material. So they make more viruses. Sometimes those viral strains mutate. Sometimes they mutate a lot, sometimes a little, but uh, one of the things that viruses do not have uh, is, is that kind of self. They also need um, the, the metabolism of, of uh, living organisms to do anything basically. Um, Freeman Dyson, for example, he was a, a very famous physicist at Princeton University who recently died. He, he uh, in his book on the origin of life, he made a distinction between um, hardware and software. So you can look at at, at uh, an organism such as a bacteria or, or or a human being. You can see that as a hardware, and a virus you can see as a software. And so that a software needs the hardware in order to do anything of of its program. And so uh, in that regard, there is no autonomy. A virus does not have autonomy, some people say. And so some people say that because of that, it does not live. On the other hand, some people say that viruses are alive because, you know, um, uh, they, they, if you look at the, the, the cycle of life, we, every human being it might be unique. But all of us are born into existence. We have our lifespan and then we die. And so that is a repetitive cycle. And we see that viruses also have a cycle. So they have a cycle of, of uh, um, attaching themselves to their host, penetrating, releasing their capsid, uh, uh, making more copies, um, and then uh, uh, destroying the cell. That is also a cycle that is part of, of the virus. So in that regard, there is a, a similarity. Um, it's a very difficult question. I, I, I uh, myself remain conflicted about whether or not to call viruses alive or not but one thing is for sure if they are companions to life because every kind of life form archaea bacteria and eukaryotic organisms have viruses they are a part of life they are a necessary i don't know if it's a necessary uh, uh companion but it is a companion some people for example uh, louis villareal he says that it's a, a form of viral colonization that every kind of life form is colonized by viruses 
Um, maybe there well, is. You, uh, you know, like almost 10% of our genome is viral DNA, and, you know, the, uh, the placenta, from what I understand, it uses viral proteins to isolate the fetus from the mother. So yes. I don't think without viruses, it would be here. No, but then it was also never required for us to be here. And the fact that that happened was, was, was uh, a contingency perhaps. And at that moment, perhaps there was some opportune reason uh, for, for that kind of um, interaction. But it, there, there was no purpose of a virus, for example, to, 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 to help establish the human placenta. So um, these, these, well, these, if, yeah. If I, if, I, um, if, I, if I think about a seed, let's say of a tree, now, I look at the tree. I'm looking at one right now outside the window. Mm-hmm. It's alive. No one would say it's not alive. But the seed, if it has seeds, is that alive? You know, and mm-hmm. if, I, if most of the time I'm, I'm observing seeds and I rarely mm-hmm. ever see a tree, mm-hmm. I probably would think, like, oh, you know, trees aren't alive. They're just, like, for a period of time, if they're in the right soil and in the right conditions, they're alive. But maybe that's how we see viruses, is that we think about and imagine, like, the very end stage, and we don't think about the stage where a virus is inside a cell and maybe therefore we're saying like, Oh, they're not alive because at some point if they're not inside a cell, they can't, they can't do anything. Yeah. It's, well, first of all, to, to call viruses alive or not, you have to have a, a, a definition of what life is. Right. And so, um, uh, for many years, uh, people thought that, uh, you could only have living organisms when there was oxygen, but then people discovered, um, anaerobic bacteria, bacteria that live in oxygen, uh, deprived environments and that actually get killed when they are in an oxygen rich environment. Uh, we, we have always also thought that life needs water, but there are uh, uh, theories that say that, that there might be life based upon uh, alcohol or uh, uh, some other kind of substance uh, that would replace the functioning of water. Uh, especially when people look at outer space, there's a lot of alcohol in space. And so some people are looking into uh, um, how alcohol might be a substitute for water. Another uh, thing that people are doing is actually looking for water in, in, in Mars and, and other planets to see whether there might be life forms. Um, you know, Aristotle, for example, one of, one of the, the first uh, philosophers uh, to, to, to think um, almost scientifically at, or what was scientific in his uh, day and age about life. He said that, you know, there is some kind of essence to things. And, 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 and I thought about it when you talked about that seed. He said that, for example, a seed has in itself already the essence to become the grown individual that it can be. So, uh, for example, um, uh, 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 a seed that becomes a melon, for example, has in itself the property to become a melon. Um, and, and that is also what makes it unique and what makes it uh, into what it is. He said that was the whatness of the individual. Um, this day and age, we, we don't think in those terms because we call it teleological. So um, the idea that a seed has as purpose or as function or as goal to become uh, uh, the, the grown-up fruit, a tree, a melon, whatever, um, is, is assuming that there is some kind of foresight, that there is some kind of goal-directedness. And that is also one of the big questions um, in science and in biology that people keep fighting over, whether there is such a thing, whether there is such a kind of teleology. So um, 
in that regard, for example, viruses, uh, we could we could like ask ourselves, are they useful? Um, sometimes we uh, human beings or other organisms, they they have some benefits from from uh, uh, being colonized by them, but most of the time they, they, they can be quite um, destructive as well. So um, is there a goal to that? That's a very interesting question and people debate that, but to, to give a straightforward answer to that is very difficult. Yeah. But so in order to, to define a virus as living or not, we need to have a definition of what life is. And at this moment, we, we don't have um, a, a, a solid definition yeah. of what life is. Most of the time, life is defined based upon metabolism and based upon some kind of autonomy. Well, even if you think about uh, people, you know, mm -hmm. some people say life begins at conception. Some people say, no, it's not till three months or six months or the baby's born. So even with our own species, you know, we can't even agree as to what life is and when life begins. So mm -hmm. I don't know if we'll ever have a definition that, that everyone will agree with. It's tough. Yes, yes, because yes, yes, the, the, and then especially in, in uh, debates on abortion, a lot of people are, are uh, pushing the, the definition of life uh, between the, the embryo and the fetus. Um, for many, for example, Descartes, who, he was a philosopher, he said, uh, I think, therefore I am. That was like the definition of, of, of a conscious human being. And he said that he was because he could think himself. So that implies that you have to have an organism that has a brain that uses that brain to think and that uh, thereby, by thinking, comes to the conclusion that he is. And what does that mean to be then, like to, to have this, this kind of self-awareness and this consciousness? And so uh, one of the things uh, that people have been doing is they have uh, tried to look for self-consciousness in other animals. And so um, uh, one of the things that people do with primates, for example, is the mirror test. If you put a chimpanzee in front of a mirror and you, you uh, um, color the cheek of a chimpanzee, he will look inside the mirror and he will touch his own face. He will not touch the mirror. He knows that he is looking at himself. If you put a dog in front of the mirror, um, the dog will bark at his image, thinking that it is a different kind of dog and that, he, is, that yeah. he needs to defend his territory. So there is no self-awareness in that regard. But that by itself is already the idea that you have to know how you look like, that you have to have some kind of, of, of concept of what a mirror is or some kind of like self-reflection. While um, some people say this is not a good way to define uh, self-consciousness. Um, a moth, for example, um, uh, has no self-consciousness because it, it flies to the light and it will burn its wings. So it has no sense of a boundary whatsoever. But a lot of animals will go away from fire at this moment in time. Uh, there are a lot of uh, fires again in America. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And uh, well, what if, what what if we see? turn the argument around? You know, um, you and I and all people are composed of trillions of cells trillions mm -hmm. of bacteria and viruses and all that and we're not aware of any of them i mm -hmm. can't feel i feel like one person so i have no consciousness no awareness of 99 percent of me yes. so maybe you know i mean i'm kind of stupid in that regard you know so it's, it's i guess there's two ways to look at it that is that is also a, a a question that is being asked is that 
um, are the the viruses that are inside of us as as parts in our DNA remnants of old viruses or the viruses that are perhaps somehow in on our skin or the bacteria are they part of us we don't feel them we didn't know that they were there for for many billions uh, uh, of years uh, most animals uh, viruses as we said viruses are in all the ways of life and 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 as so far as we know, we are the only ones that somehow are conscious of them. And we, we only discovered that about a century ago um, that there were these kinds of infectious agents. And most of the time, most animals, they don't know that. Plants, they don't know that. Or we don't know whether they somehow like realize that they have a disease or something like that. But are they part of you? Um, uh, some people say that, that you become a plus one. So the idea that there is a unique individual and that that individual is singular is an idea that is outdated, that is uh, uh, cast in, in old kinds of uh, anthropological jargon, philosophical jargon that is no longer to the point. And so we should think about ourselves uh, as holobionts. So um, uh, we are uh, biological individuals, but we are basically a group. Um, we have our own conscious self, but we can only function because we have uh, uh, commensal relationships with bacteria in our gut. If we wouldn't have that, we would be uh, sick. We, we have uh, uh, relationships with viruses, etc. So in that regard, this, this, this virium and this microbiome forms a part of us and, and makes us what we are. And so in that regard, you are not only an individual, you are a group and you are even by yourself a full ecosystem. You are in many ways a habitable zone of life. Many viruses that, that uh, uh, in, if you look at our DNA, we have a lot of parts uh, of the DNA that are remnants of old viruses. And so somehow you can look at that as genes that have found shelter in our DNA. Uh, the, the, the microbiome that helps us to digest our food lives in an oxygen uh, low environment in our gut while the world outside is, is full of oxygen, so they would die. So that is like a commensal relationship that we have built um, that enables all of us to survive and that enables us to become an ecological system by ourselves. We are a biosystem. So um, in, in, in philosophy, sometimes people say that one person is a library because he or she has read so many books, but one person is also a landscape. It is, it is a, a world in itself. So. Um... Why do you think that uh, when someone gets infected by a virus, uh, there's a latency period? Why does it take a while? Is it just the exponential replication of virus and quote unquote enough cells are affected? Or do you think there's some uh, signaling or coordination or quorum sensing that goes on where the virus is communicating using cellular machinery and saying, all right, we're ready, let's attack. So there, there, um, uh, there was a team in, in, uh, Israel in the Weizmann Institute around uh, Rotem Sorek that found that there indeed is some kind of quorum sensing. So uh, viral particles um, can apparently attack with one another and, and uh, inform whether or not it is opportune to become, uh, um, to, to uh, uh, start a lytic phase or not. So uh, they, they can um, decide, well, it's, it's a form of biochemical communication, but they can uh, this, communicate at a molecular level with each other about whether or not to attack their bacterial host. 
um, and so um, that 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 raises a lot of questions because um, there you have uh, this this entity. Some well, you you cannot really call it an organism because it doesn't have that metabolism. It has to have the metabolism of of others um, and of living organisms. But there you have these these groups of viruses that apparently are uh, able to somehow at a molecular level, so a very well established uh, biochemical level communicate whether or not to attack a host, whether or not to stay dormant. Um, and, and, and people are investigating now whether they even have a sense of how many viruses there are. So it appears that, that uh, much of that has to do with opportunity. Another thing is also that um, some viruses, you know, you, you have those names, you have the, 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 swine, uh, the swine flu virus and, and uh, the, uh, some, some viruses have like these specific names because they are um, um, associated with specific animals. And it is then all of a sudden that, that they are, uh, well, you can say in a way that they are stuck to those animals. So one of the reasons that, that sometimes it might not be opportune to, to, to go uh, to the virulent phase is that they um, um, might not have uh, opportunity to do so, but like what, what happened with the COVID uh, uh, virus, for example, so we know that there are several um, uh, variants of these coronaviruses. And so um, uh, a group of these viruses is found in camels, a group of these viruses is uh, uh, found in um, uh, the musk uh, called palm uh, civet cat. And so what we know is that all of the sudden, we know that they all originated from bats, that they somehow got, uh, uh, that they somehow jumped from bats to these other organisms. And then somehow they jumped from there to uh, human beings. And so what we see there is that there was opportunity. So most of the time, these viruses are, are part of, a, of one species. And they are specifically adapted to that species, and then most of the time they come, they, they 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 sort of make harmless infections uh, in those hosts. But then when they jump, they uh, take on uh, uh, a, they they start to to spread very rapidly and and very fiercely, and they they can uh, um, uh, like the COVID now. Um, attack millions of, of organisms of one species. So sometimes it, I think it's opportunity that they are just unable, that they have to um, evolve and, and mutate randomly to, to, um, to be able to jump from one species to another. Hello? Yeah, well, why do you think um, viruses will change behavior? Some are you know, pathogenic and they just get inside and multiply and blow cells open and kill them. Other ones will be latent inside them or lysogenic, you know, for the organism's whole life sometimes. And then sometimes they'll be like that for a period of time. And, you know, when the organism, let's say, is stressed, they'll come out and now become lytic. And some even endogenize into DNA. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why are there these uh, three behaviors of viruses and what governs their, what governs them and when they change? I think a lot of it also might have to do with uh, interaction. So sometimes, um, the a virus can can be uh, uh, made harmless by the host. Sometimes um, uh, the virus is able to to um, hide from the host, and so it is not detected by the host immune system. Um, sometimes the virus loses its own uh, tricks, so to speak. Uh, sometimes, like uh, it, it loses parts of of. Um, it's, it's software, so to say, and uh, it 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 becomes unable to. Um, 
uh, attack or, or to, to leave, so to say. So, um, and sometimes it is, it is um, uh, very able to, to spread and then uh, we see that it, it, it can very quickly make an enormous amount of copies and, 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 and release that into the environment and provide more uh, infections. And then through those infections, the mutation rate of the virus also increases. So the more copies that are made, the more chance there is for error, the more chance there is for error, the more evolution there is of, of that virus, the more growth there is of that virus. Um, but there again, this, this is, this, these are phenomena that we see, but we, we, we use anthropomorphic jargon to talk about that. And then the question is, is there some kind of consciousness? Like, for example, with, with uh, this, this form of quorum sensing, sensing that we see, apparently some viruses, like, and just like the common flu, um, uh, can, can keep track of how many cells it is infecting. So um, is there a plan? It, it is a very interesting question, but I, I, I have no definite answer. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, a lot of these questions will be, will be difficult like that. Um, I've also noticed that um, viruses appear to be matched in how they infect, what tissues and cells they infect, and then how they propagate. So mm -hmm. if I'm bitten by a dog with rabies, it, it's going to make me want to bite other people, salivate and spread it by biting. Yeah. You know, why, why, um, why is AIDS not spread by coughing and sneezing? Uh, why sexual transmission and why is influenza, you know, acquired by respiratory droplets and then transmitted by respiratory droplets? It seems like there's a matching between the cells infected and then the mechanism of transfer to another host. Yeah, I don't know. What, if, why do you think that is? I, I don't know if we if yes I don't know if we can think about that like I, I uh, in that in those kinds of terms so I think there is such a thing as opportunity in nature so um, for example we have uh, us us mammals for example we have a breathing apparatus and so we know that mammals have respiratory diseases. Um, and that is, I think, an opportunity. So the, we have these, these cavities in, in our body and they can be penetrated and they can provide a, a, a place for shelter uh, where, where bacteria, for example, can grow or, or like, or, you know, our, um, uh, or viruses, like, you know, we, we have airways so we can, we, can, we can breathe in viral particles such as the flu. Um, but... Um, and then we also see that there are specific um, adaptations and mutations in these viruses that enable them to penetrate um, or to communicate somehow biochemically um, uh, with our cells. So some viruses know how to penetrate our cells. They know how to enter our cells. They know how to uh, uh, put themselves inside of our genome. They know how to make our genome ignore its own genes in favor of the viral genes and then replicate itself and eventually lead to the destruction of the cell. So they can somehow do that. But there what we see is a, is a form of coevolution, uh, and And that I think that is based on opportunity. And so we see that they make uh, use of our sexual organs, uh, anything that makes like a, a kind of fluid exchange. So sexual organs, um, uh, uh, breathing, any kind of mucus, uh, uh, sneezing, you know, wherever there is some kind of fluid that is exchanged, it is, it is being used of that. People, um, uh, the viruses make use of that and people can be infected like that. 
also just like eating, you know, uh, food can be one of the biggest sources of uh, infections. So that is also uh, uh, where we can find um, uh, bacteria that can uh, uh, infect us or also like viral particles, for example, they, they uh, are somehow uh, sometimes uh, transmitted through that also through vectors like mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, for example, are, are uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, insect uh, species that are uh, uh, a transportation um, uh, system, so to speak, between uh, the animals that they, they sting and uh, the, the bacteria and the viruses that they carry. So vi uh, uh, viruses that are, are transmitted by mosquitoes are the dengue virus and uh, the Zika virus and um, the West Nile virus. There are so many different viruses that are being transmitted by 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 mosquitoes. And what happens there is again it's opportunity. Um, so I don't know if we can really say that that there is a virus that, for example, through rabieses and and it programs to bite. And if you have rabies, you want to bite. It's true. Like you know, like like uh, dogs that have been infected with rabies, they they will go wild and, and, and bite other ones. But that is a very uh, interesting question. Like is a bite reflex somehow uh, induced by an infection by rabies? Is there some kind of chemical uh, uh, road towards that? As so far as I know, I don't think that the gene or a kind of chemical pathway has been uh, discovered that says that it is, but it is something, yeah, why, why does that happen? A person that has been infected with the flu will sneeze more. Is, is that genetically determined? Is that biochemically determined? Or is that just the airways that are infected that make you sneeze? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems to be like, you know, not in every case, but there's a lot of matching. So, um, yeah, uh, that, you know, that, and that, that, that is, is, is a form of coevolution. So, so um, it's, it's. I see, I don't, I don't know how it's possible, but I see in all of this agency, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and again, this matching in, uh, going from lytic to lysogenic to, you know, and back and forth from latent to, you know, pathogenic, et cetera. But, you know, again, that's just my perception. But that's why I ask is, is what do you think all this behavior is coming from? It all depends on how, how we define agency. And for example, James uh, Shapiro from uh, Chicago University, uh, he says, and, and I agree with, with uh, most of what he says, I think he's a genius scholar. He says that you can find agency at a genetic level, in, in mobile uh, genetic elements, in, in um, uh, viruses and, and, and genes and, and, and plasmids. He says, like, from, from as soon as you have those elements, you can say that there is agency because there, there is some kind of behavior. There is some kind of functional behavior. And, and, and in a way, like, they, they, have, uh, they know what to do and what not to do, and there is some kind of self-preservation, etc. And 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 I hear him and I agree, but there, like you know, in philosophy, that that and their philosophy is completely behind. There is no way at this moment in time to 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 define that kind of agency uh, in the way that we have been doing that, because agency has been defined by a kind of self, and that self has been defined by a kind of consciousness, and by a kind of self-identification and self-defense, etc. And so um, uh, uh, we are, uh, that, that, that's also a question like is, is, we are talking here about genes and about mobile elements and about bacteria and viruses and they don't even have a brain. They don't even have uh, um, some kind of neurological 
a system that enables them to have any kind of self-awareness. So what we need to do then, if we want to talk about cognition at that level and thinking about that and thinking in, 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 at that level, we have to redefine it. So we have to take away any kind of consciousness, any kind of neurological basis of cognition. And then there are a lot of philosophers that would say, well, if you take away uh, the neurological part of cognition, then there is no cognition at all. Um, then you have to call it something else. Mm. But the reason why, for example, somebody like James Superior says that it is cognition is because he sees that link. He says, like, you know, is there, he, he asks the question, and it is a very important question, a very difficult question. Is there a difference between thinking neurologically and uh, behaving molecularly and genetically? Oh, yeah. I don't know, yeah. Hmm. Um, I guess another question I had for now is, um, you know, if I, if I get infected with a virus and I'm, I just label myself patient number one and then I give it to you and you're number two and then you give it to someone and they're number three and, and so on. You know, by the time the virus gets to like number 20, it's mm -hmm. passaged through 20 people. Do you think it's going to become more virulent, less virulent, more commensal, maybe even try to endogenize? Um, you know, do you think viruses have a goal that they're going towards? Are they evolving towards becoming, you know, again, more commensal or do you think they again they're going somewhere in some direction i think i think these are very difficult questions to ask and i i also wonder about the formulation of that because again like they're like you know is, is there a goal is there a, a, a some kind of conscious decision that is being made towards that i don't know like you know biochemically we, we see that there is some kind of quorum sensing that they that they somehow uh through some kind of peptides are able to say um, that they are there, that, that like, you know, they are somehow signaling like you're not alone here, like I am here too, uh, infecting this organism, like somehow they have an idea that, that others are there, whether or not it's opportune to, 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 to stay dormant or not to stay dormant and to go to the lytic phase. Um, but is that going somewhere like, you know, they, it's not only a virus, like an infection is, is, is something that might be uh, <coughs> induced by a virus. It might be induced by a virus, but there's also a host. So first of all, when a virus uh, penetrates an organism, there is also the opportunity that he had, but there is also the organism that either was somehow enabling that or unable to fence it off. That's already the first question. When, a, when an organism is infected by a virus, is that because it is unable to fence it off or is it because it allows it to enter? These are, the, 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 the terminology here is difficult, you know, like a lot of people object to it and they just look at a biochemical level, like is there like some kind of lock and key system? And there we see that there is a, um, often a co-evolution. So a virus uh, is often able to uh, enter and an organism is often able to, uh, to, to uh, fence it off sometimes by previous viruses. So sometimes we know that uh, a virus is, is uh, one kind of virus might not be able to, to, to infect some kind of organism because that organism has um, uh, uh, been able to, to fence off that virus because it was infected by another virus. So there it is the viruses that are fighting with each other in a way, but sometimes you know that uh, we, we, we know that we have uh, uh, organisms have been able to, 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 to benefit from some viral infections. 
uh, or they have been able to eventually, uh, again, anthropomorphically speaking, to somehow get along with each other. So what we see is that a lot of viruses are in parts of the DNA, uh, which used to be called junk DNA. So the idea that it was there that these genes are not used. But now we know that the junk DNA has a lot of genes that are not just junk, that are actually being used and sometimes used for good, sometimes used for bad. So we know right. that there are viruses that, that cause cancer. We also know that there are viruses that, that um, uh, help, for example, fence off other viruses or, or give you properties that you would not have had without the virus. So um, what about um, virus-like behavior? You know, viruses seem to use tools. They seem to be used as tools. You know, like viruses will take genetic material from their hosts. They'll use cellular machinery for their purposes. Um, but at the same time, bacteria have co-opted spike proteins from viruses and expressed them themselves. And, you know, part of bacterial immunity is to take viral DNA and, and use it themselves. And, you know, it, it, it seems like they're, again, they're tools, but they're also, uh, again, agents for their own propagation as well. It's weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is also a trait that they, they that they share with a lot of living organisms, like a lot of uh, uh, living organisms, even bacteria use tools, you know, it's not just viruses, like um, uh, there are studies that demonstrate that sometimes like uh, uh, particles are used as weapons against other viruses, there is always a, a kind of communication, some kind of group identity, um, an us against them, in a way, um, some kind of communication that exists and then some kind of coevolution um, and, and every kind of organism has that. So in that regard, that, that might be another argument to call viruses uh, living agents because they, they also have that, they, they um, make use of tools, they, they uh, communicate, they have some kind of, of group um, living, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to know if you think that's uh, so. This this bleeds into another question: Do you, uh, do viruses have a um, a sense of self versus other? You know, there's there have been like quasi species defined. Mm -hmm. So when an infection happens, it doesn't look like just one you know single strain virus affects you, but there are many quasi species that come along with it. Do you think there's coordination amongst the quasi species? Like, you know, if you look at a um, a colony of ants. You have worker ants and, you know, other kinds of ants or bees, you know, worker bees, the queen, you know, the soldiers, the honey gatherers, that kind of stuff. Do you think that viruses could act in this way and they coordinate amongst quasi, you know, close quasi species to infect? Yeah, I, I recently read a study that um, demonstrated that um, there was some kind of organized attack where the, the first viral particles are uh, destroyed by the host. And it is a necessary step for the uh, other viruses, for the remaining vir viral particles to then uh, go forward. So uh, uh, some kind of layer attack and then the first ones have to die for the, the next uh, uh, series of, of uh, viral particles to be able to successfully uh, infect uh, the organism. So apparently there, there is some kind of uh, organized uh, uh, attack sometimes that, that somehow gives this idea that there is a group um, from a pure genetic point of view and, and also a sociobiological point of view. There have been a lot of studies in higher organisms. I don't like the term higher, but like in, in uh, um, 
animals mostly and, and human beings about um, um, inclusive fitness and, and why there is altruism. And, and then um, some people see that as a, as, a, as a counting of genes. So it is more likely, for example, they say that uh, I would jump into the water to rescue my, my uh, niece than that I would do so to rescue some kind of foreign person because I do not share that many genes with them. And so like that um, uh, communication, for example, is also something, um, and that seems to be universal communication is established between those that are more alike towards you in behavior, socioculturally, uh, but also in genes. And so uh, it might even be why there are different languages because there are different cultural groups. And, and so that kind of communication is a way to, to establish a sense of, of, of uh, group identity uh, that is not shared with other groups. And so those become uh, uh, the ones that you fight against or that you ignore. Um, and so this inclusive fitness uh, apparently is also something that we can see already at a viral level. So um, that is a question. So a virus that mutates, is that a good thing for the virus or is that a bad thing for the virus um, um, in a way? Thinking about like how philosophers would identify agency, um, uh, uh, a mutated strain of me would, would not be benefit, beneficial to me because it would not be me. But on the other hand, if it's almost... Well, even, even, even exactly you, I mean, epigenetically, you and the clone of you are going to drift over time. Or exactly. if I was able to clone you and grow the other Natalie up like two seconds to be your age, I mean, you know, you would start diverging immediately more and more and more with different environments and stuff, you know? Exactly. But so suppose like, you know, they, 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 that happens, but there is like still some kind of 90% uh, uh, similarity. Is that beneficial to me? Um, maybe for a virus it is like, uh, 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 we know, for example, now the COVID-19 uh, 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 virus, it's not one strain. There are by now an enormous amount of strains there are websites where you can find that um that uh, in italy the american ones the 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 ones that you find in spain there there there's a lot of variation there and so this variation is is um is that beneficial to the first one to to covid 19 one is that beneficial for it to have these many variants or not the, the person who invented the, 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 the term quasi-species, species who was uh, Manfred Eigen, uh, um, he used that to... So for a long time in biology, the idea was that you have the wild type, which was the dominant um, individual uh, of a species. And so that one has to make as many copies as possible by himself because he is successful. But then what Manfred Eigen said was, well, what you see is that it's not like, you know, identical copies of that individual that arise. What we see is that there are more and more mutations of that wild type. Uh, and so these are the quasi-species because he says in order for, for um, a species to evolve, these quasi-species need to overthrow um, the, the existing wild type. And so it is the quasi-species, the, the, the group of mutations of the wild type uh, that eventually take over. Yeah, some people have even told me like the idea of a, of a species or a strain in the bacterial world or the virus world is not even applicable. Like E. coli, you know, there's so many different variants. How could you say what E. coli is, you know? Yeah. Uh, same thing with viruses. It's weird. 
there's no archetype. I mean, and on some level there is, but not exactly. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and in that regard also, like, uh, um, um, we you know we, we we biology the way that we know it and 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 based on philosophy and people like aristotle have have long thought about these essences and the idea that you know there is this human microbiome there is this a human genome like it it, it when 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 they did the genome studies it was called the human genome project and what did the human genome project show that that we were 70 percent uh genetically a melon uh, that we were 98% chimpanzee and, and bonobo. So, you know, there is nothing unique and human about these genes that have been around for a very long time. And sometimes it, it uh, at 98% it gives a chimpanzee or a bonobo and at 100% it gives a, a human being. So we had the Human Genome Project and then people were saying, ah, what makes the uh, a human a human is we're going to find that with the Human Genome Project, we're going to identify these genes. And then the Human Genome Project demonstrated that 70% of the human genes that are there are shared with melons. And 98% of those genes are shared with chimpanzees and with bonobos. So there is nothing particularly human about the human genes that they found. These genes have been uh, shared and been around with many organisms out there. And so much of what much of what you said uh, about these these viruses uh, uh, um, that goes the same. Although there also that's also very interesting. Viruses apparently have an enormous amount of genes that are not found in any other individual, in any other living being, such as archaea, bacteria, or eukaryotic organisms. In fact, 80% of the genes that are found in, in uh, viruses are unique to those viruses. So apparently viruses are somehow like gene-creating machines or gene-containing machines um, that, um, you know, uh, store this genetic mat material or make this genetic material. You know, uh, so a couple more things. Um, if I have a, a bacterial cell, let's say, and I suck out some of the, the components so that the bacterial cell really can't function properly, and then, a, you know, a virus goes and fuses to it and, you know, tries to enter, do you think the virus would sense something's wrong and stop mid-entry? Or do you think it would just go ahead blindly and just enter the cell as normal and, uh-oh, you know, nobody's home, now I'm stuck? Uh, you know, that kind of language is, is difficult because it all depends on, on biochemical cues and signals. So uh, it's, it's like a lock on a door. So if the door is open, you might go in the virus. But um, if there is, is uh, no uh, hospitality or, or, or uh, anything like that, then, then he, he will not be able to do something. Plasmids or something that are around that they could take up those, those genes, but that would be it. Okay. Well, no, you know, no problem. Um, uh, so I guess last question for now is, um, you know, it's a generic one and we've been talking about it. Like what, what overall role when you step back and look at evolution, adaptation, speciation, et cetera, what role do you see viruses playing? Well, I think viruses are, are major players in evolution uh, in so far as they, they, um, provide an opportunity also to organisms to evolve because there is this coevolution. Um, if you are uh, as a species attacked by viruses, there, there is only like, you know, there are only so many routes that you can go, like either you, you um, uh, die from it or you somehow learn to, to get along and, and to, to um, um, 
coexist. And so we know that sometimes organisms are able to, to um, uh, change the, the genes of the virus in order for the virus to become less harmful or um, uh, the virus uh, is somehow um, more docile to the organism because it somehow finds like this space where it can integrate and, and, and become part of the genome. Um, and so I think uh, that viruses are, are major players in biodiversity in a good and in a bad way with the COVID-19 virus. Um, again, we see there like at this moment in time, we are talking about, uh, I think, 19 million infected uh, individuals, and uh, we are almost at, at uh, 1 million of, of um, organisms that died, of human beings that died. So um, there are species that have a, a much less headcount. Uh, if you look at all these bioconservation uh, programs, uh, there are species that are with much lesser numbers. So uh, a virus can, can, can uh, facilitate or induce uh, extinction. And it can also help with, with uh, adaptation and perhaps speciation uh, insofar as there becomes uh, uh, an interaction, there arises an interaction between the virus and the organism. So both of them evolve because of that interaction. So as such, okay. a virus is a major yeah. player in evolution. Yeah, oh, excellent. That's excellent, yeah. Well, very good, Natalie. We're out of time. Um, okay. What's the best way for people to follow up on your research and to learn more from you? Where can they go? So I have a, a, a website, which is the Applied Evolutionary Epistemology Lab, and the website is appeal, A-P-P-E-E-L, uh, .fc.ul.pt. So I'm at the University of Lisbon, and um, you can find me there. And also, just if you if you Google my name, you can find my academia page where you have all my, my papers. And uh, we have a YouTube channel as well, so uh, they, they can find me there. Well, very good. Natalie, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm, I'm uh, very happy to have been here. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.